All right. Well, today we are going to continue our Exploring the Bible series. We started it last week, and if you were here last week, you know that last Sunday, during our introduction of the series, we I told you about how much I love the Bible. If you remember, I carried in a bunch of different Bibles that I had. I had to admit that I had over 30 Bibles, and I seem to have more all the time, but I don't need any more. But I showed you the collection I had of over 30 because I just love the Bible. Ever since I was saved back in 2001, which is over 20 years ago, I became fully engrossed with the Bible. I mean, I love studying it. I love reading it. I love certain memorizing scripture. I mean, everything about it, I just love it. And I even love, to me, knowing facts about the Bible. To some, it may seem boring, but to me, it's intriguing, it's interesting, it's fascinating to know certain things about the Bible. So I learned and looked up this week things that we all need to know. Be sure to memorize this number, all these numbers that we're going to find today. Interesting facts about the Bible. Here it is. Books of the Bible, we probably know. 66. There's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Chapters in the Bible, 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 929 chapters in the Old Testament, 260 in the New Testament. I don't see anybody writing anything down yet. There's a quiz later. Sheila just talked about, I got a red pen in my, in my pocket. All right? I got a red pen in my pocket. <laughs> 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 929 the Old Testament, 260 New Testament. Go ahead and take a picture of what's behind me. You'll get it. Verses in the Bible, 31,173. Yeah, 23,214 the Old Testament, 7,959 in the New Testament. You got it? Words in the Bible. 773,692 words divided between the old and the new. All right. Promises in the Bible, 1,260. Commands, 6,468. And questions in the Bible, 3,294. Now, that is a lot of stuff we can find in the Bible. A lot of words, a lot of verses, a lot of promises a lot of commands, and a lot of questions all throughout the Bible. 3,294 questions is a lot of questions. I can imagine my grandkids asking me 3,294 questions. But of the 3,294 questions, here's the thing we do today. We take that number and we narrow it down to just four. Four questions we're going to find today as we look into Genesis chapter 3. It could be an account you're very familiar with. We're going to refresh ourselves about what it is we're referring to. And then we're going to find four questions within verses 8 through 13 of the third chapter. Four questions we're going to ask ourselves today. God asked the people we're going to identify in just a moment. You already know the account I'm talking about. And then we're going to analyze it. We're going to ask ourselves those four questions. I present to you that God asked us those same questions today. So let's stand this morning and begin to look upon Genesis chapter 3. Again, we're in verses 8 through 13. We've narrowed it in a lot of what's talking about here in 
what is regarded to as the fall. So we find in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, these words. All right, so verse 8. And they, okay, that's Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man Adam and his wife Eve hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Wouldn't he, now God said in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man Adam said in verse 12, The woman you gave me to be with. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. But then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading here today, Lord, a rather brief introduction of what's happening here into the text with the fall. But Lord, we pray today that you'll lead, you'll guide, you'll direct us as we begin to examine these verses, to see these questions, these four questions just in these verses that you ask Adam and Eve, but you're asking us today, Lord, and I pray that we understand that and we begin to apply that to our lives. Let us leave here later, Lord, understanding how these questions directly relate to the lives we live in in our modern day. So thank you, Lord, for what shall happen here today, for what we shall learn and what we shall apply. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll note that by beginning our reading of verse 8, it assumes that you, true enough, are knowledgeable to the fall. The fall is what's recorded here in Genesis chapter 3. Not the season, mind you, the fall, but the fall, which is often what scholars refer to as the first recorded sin of mankind. But just to be sure that we're all on the same page, we'll do a really quick, brief review. So remember, first and foremost, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that Adam was instructed not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here's the reading. And the Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, in verse 16, chapter 2, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the knowledge, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you do eat of it, you will surely die. Two simple verses, a command given to Adam, seems easy to follow, to understand, and to obey. But in the beginning of chapter 3, we find a serpent upon the scene, not just tempting Adam, but tempting Eve, Adam's wife. So notice then as we switch to the beginning of chapter 3, wasn't in our reading, but we know this, that in chapter 3, in the very first verse, the serpent comes upon the scene, and what he begins to do with Eve is cast doubt. It's, he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now in verse 4, we see he continues, and we see that he does it by lying and deceit. For he says, You will not surely die. Which then all that in turn with the conversation that Eve is having with the serpent led ultimately to verse 6 where they did take a bite from the fruit that they were told not to. 
So verse 6 said, when a woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then, of course, as she shared it with Adam, and they took of her sin, it informs us their eyes were opened, and they realized in verse 7 that they were naked. That is the first recorded sin. That is the fall of mankind. So with that information, to make sure we clearly understand what the fall is, we go back now to where we started in verse 8. In verse 8, again, it tells us when they, now it's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden to cool the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? There is our first question. Where are you? Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? That's an interesting question. We begin to really process what's happening in the text and just in general with God. Because there's no doubt that God knows exactly where Adam is. When you cannot hide from God, you don't keep anything from God. So I mean, God knew exactly where Adam is. So it's an interesting question now that we see God asking Adam that would begin to apply to our lives. God says to Adam, where are you? Now, when you think about that with Adam and what follows here, it's kind of like when God asks Adam, where are you? It's like playing hide and seek with the toddler. I mean, the parent or the grandparent begins to explain the concept of the game to the toddler of hide and seek. It's not an overly complicated game. I mean, one person hides, which will be the toddler normally, and one person, which is the parent or the grandparent, begins to count and then seek them after they've hidden. It's not hard to understand the concept of the game. But to a toddler, their idea of hiding is like under the table or behind the curtain or in the next room when they can't see you. But the whole time, you can see them. They can't see you, so they think they're hidden. But you can see this image behind the curtain. You can see a leg under the table. You can even see the toddler in the room, but they can't see you. So they think they've mastered the game, and they are hidden. All along, not knowing that you can see them. In a way, it's the same thing with Adam and God. I mean, hide-and-seek is just a game, yeah, but it's also similar to what's happening with Adam as he's trying to hide from God. You cannot hide from God. Adam began to learn this pretty quickly, I would imagine. But God knew exactly where Adam was. But he asked the question to Adam because he wanted Adam to take an inward look at himself. I mean, I can imagine what's happened in the garden. God makes his presence known. He's looking around. Adam's trying to hide. It's like the toddler. So God finally says, Adam, where? he's got to have a choice like that, right? Adam, where are you? What did Adam respond? Hey, God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, so I began to be afraid. I was naked and I hid myself. That's how Adam responds. When God calls him out, 
But Adam's truthful answer should have been something like this. To God, I'm over here hiding because I sinned against you. You told me not to eat from the tree, but I listened to my wife and I did it anyway. But that's not what Adam said, did he? He could have said that, but he didn't say those words. Now, Adam replies in a way that he tells God he was hiding, he was afraid. And perhaps he should have been afraid. Because he did something that God had asked him not to do. So he tried to hide, and he admitted that he was afraid. That was the situation with Adam. Let's take a time out and see how it applies to us. Because we need to understand, although that was Adam's situation, God asked us the same question today. You may not hear him audibly, but God is sometimes asking, where are you? Where are you? Where are you, Colton? Where are you, John? Where are you, Roger? Where are you, Ken? He's asking all of us, where are we at certain times in our life? God will ask the question. We won't hear his voice, but he's asking, he's wondering, where are you? And he knows exactly where you are. But he'll still ask the question like he did to Adam so we can take an inward look at ourselves. Where are you? Begin to think about that last week, and I'm thinking, there's got to be two, at least two legitimate reasons that God would ask us at times in our life, where are you? And so I came up with these two possibilities in which God will ask us, where are you? First of all, it's because we are sinners. We need to admit that we're sinners. But because we are sinners and because we don't want the discipline, we try to hide from the discipline that will follow from the sin that we do. And the second reason that sometimes we do this is because our sin, God will ask, where are you? Because our sin creates some distance between us and God. Now, regarding that first reason that we try to hide because we are sinners and we don't receive the discipline, we need to realize that although we cannot hide from God, we think we can, and we begin to learn this act of hiding at a very early age in life. I mentioned a toddler earlier who's trying to play hide and seek and truly cannot hide from their parents. But we still think that we can hide from God. We even try to hide from our parents as a toddler when we were younger. My children, all three of them, are fully grown children. I love that. There's nobody at home with me anymore besides Sheila. But as they are fully grown, I remember when they were younger, and I remember when they were younger, and you may be surprised by this, they used to do things they were not supposed to do. They sinned against me. Can you believe that? As they sinned against me, or Sheila, somehow, some way, we always found out. Now, that happened throughout all their childhood years. But I remember when Kayla was younger, much younger, much, much younger, I'm at the age of four. She took one of her crayon markers and wrote on the refrigerator. And we had told her that you don't write on the refrigerator. Now, as that happened, Sheila and I, of course, found out that she wrote on the refrigerator. So as we, as she done something she knew she wasn't supposed to do, what does she do as a result of that? She finds out that we know she runs to hide. 
because she does not want to receive the discipline that follows when you disobey your parents. So she tries to hide. It's our normal reaction that we have in life. When we start to do something wrong, we try to hide. It's what we do. We know the commands. God has given us the commands. We noted how many number of commands God has given to us. Interesting Bible facts. We may not memorize every command, but we know the difference between right and wrong. We know what God expects from every one of us. But we still fail. There's times we're still disobedient. And when it happens, we should know that discipline is going to follow. We aren't exactly excited about discipline. No one seems to be. So we try to hide, and God calls out, where are you? But God is everywhere. We cannot hide from him. Adam could not hide, and neither can any of us. But notice also that God begins to ask, where are you, when we become distant to God. Distance occurs when we sin, or when we begin to question his love for us, which may not happen a lot, but can happen when we don't get the answer to prayer that we so desperately wanted. And perhaps you're praying over a situation for healing to a loved one. And that healing did not occur. As a result, we can quickly become angry and upset with God to the point where we can become distant as a result. Or maybe we're praying for a child. Maybe we're praying for the child to have children with their husband, but nothing is happening. Or, or maybe we're praying for a promotion. Or maybe we're praying for some marital assistance or a new job or a new boyfriend, new girlfriend. Maybe we're praying for help on the exam or about to have. And the list could go on and on and on about all the things we pray for. But in the prayer that we're having, it seems to be the answer is either no or we just don't get an answer. So we begin then in our life to think, well, God is not listening to me. He must not love me or he just isn't real. And as that happens, we become distant to God. It begins to happen to almost all of us at some point in our life. Something happens. Maybe some prayers not answered. Life happens. And sometimes we grow distant to God. So let me just ask the question then. Are you distant from God? It's a dangerous position to be in. Because distance introduces the possibility of becoming lost. The farther we wander away, wandering away by having sin after sin after sin and not confessing, the further we wander away, the greater the possibility of becoming lost. And as we're lost, we're just aimlessly going through life, wandering about, to the point where we can even become a missing person. Are you a missing person? If you are distant, you're a missing person. In fact, God is on his throne calling to you now. He's asking, where are you? So you can take an inward look at you for yourself, but he knows precisely where you are, and he sees you then as distant. You are distant, and now you're a missing person. 
God on his throne sends out an amber alert to try to get your attention, just like what happened this morning, 12.15 a.m. on my phone. I get this audible noise that wakes me from the sleep I'm enjoying, and it's an amber alert from happening somewhere in Indianapolis. Child abduction occurred. Amber alert being sent out. Similarly, it happens to you when you're missing and God is wanting to get your attention. An amber alert from his throne is called out because you're a missing person. You've distanced yourself from God. So where are you right now in your relationship with God? Make that question extremely personal. Where are you? in your own personal relationship with God. Where are you? And realize as you hear that and begin to process that, God has not moved. He is still there. So it's up to us people to close the distance. And you can do that by confessing your sin. That's the first question we see in the text. He's asked Adam, and applies to all of us. Where are you? But there's three others. So we return once more to the text. Notice in verse 10, we go back to the reading, pick up more. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? The second question we find that God asked that we can apply to all of our lives is then, who told you that? Who told you that whatever? Who told you that? Now remember, in Adam's situation, he was told not to eat of the particular tree. He received the fruit from his wife. Their eyes were open in verse 7. They knew they were naked. So as we see this happening, we know what the story's about. We know what's happening. We know he, he sinned. He, he ate from the tree. I mean, you, you can blame Adam, Eve, whoever you want to blame, but the fact it is a sin. And as a sin, as a, their eyes were opened and they were naked. Now, hearing that, look at verse 7. Most people always associate naked as pure nakedness. Especially at the end of the verse when it says they sewed big leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So I get it. I see how people associate real nakedness to Adam and Eve at that moment. It's a reasonable conclusion. But let's challenge ourselves for a moment. Let's expand our mind upon naked. Let's take a moment to reflect upon something other than just pure nakedness that naked could refer to. Because we find then that naked can also mean something further. We expand our minds and begin to see that naked can refer to defenseless or unprotected or perhaps someone that is stripped of the necessities of life. Maybe to be without something, robbed of life maybe even. Destitute. Maybe living without meaning, living without hope. Process that for a moment about what naked could refer to. And then consider once more the question. Of course, Adam's being asked, who told you that you were naked? But God could be asking you or me, who told you that you were defenseless? Who told you that you were living unprotected? Who told you that you were without meaning? 
Who told you that you live without hope? Who told you that you're destitute? For that matter, who told you that you're nothing? Who told you that you're worthless? Who tells us that garbage? There's one source, not God, that tells us that we're nothing, we're worthless, without meaning, without purpose. And that is our enemy. None other than the enemy will try to convince you that you are nothing, worthless. Satan is the source. He is the one telling you that you're nothing, you're nobody, that you're worthless. That talk comes from Satan. That don't come from God. God created each and every one of us to be something, to be special, to be somebody, to glorify him. The psalmist tells us in Psalms 139.14 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So don't let Satan tell you differently. Don't let him convince you that you're naked without meaning and purpose and special to God. Because you are wonderfully and fearfully made. David, in his prayer to God, recognized himself as the apple of God's eye in Psalm 17, 8. But it's not just limited to David. We're also that special in God's estimation. We're still the apple of God's eye. It just didn't happen to David. So rebuke the nonsense coming from the enemy. God says to every one of us, you are special. You are precious. You are beautiful. So listen to God when he calls you. Listen to him because he's saying you're made in my image. As it tells us in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. You're beautiful. You're special. You're something. You're extraordinary. That's the words of God. Who told you that you're worthless, that you're living without hope, comes from the enemy. But of course, the question here is that God asked Adam, who told you that you were naked? That's the second question we find in the text. The third question is also found in verse 11. Verse 11 again says, he said, it's God who told you were naked. But here comes the next question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I mean, God's third question is, have you? In Adam's case, it's, have you eaten from the tree I clearly told you not to? But in our case, God says, have you disobeyed? Have you sinned? Here again, Adam is asked, have you eaten from the tree? Now that is similar, if you will, to the fashion of the first question of where are you? I mean, God already knew the answer. He wasn't asking Adam, have you eaten from the tree, to know if Adam really did eat from the tree. God already knew it. God knew that Adam had eaten from the tree, but he wanted Adam to see his sin. Because so many times it's difficult, hard, for us to see that we are sinners. I mean, we can often see the sins of others without a problem, 2020 vision, but sometimes we have difficulty seeing our own sin. <laughs> Look at Adam's response in verse 12. As God asked him, have you eaten from the tree? He said, 
the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. I mean, notice how he tried to shift blame immediately. It's like God asking him, hey, Adam, Adam, baby, have you eaten from the tree, dude? Have you eaten from the tree? And Adam says, um, well, God, it's not really my fault. That woman that you gave to me, you know, it's almost like he blames God. That woman, God, that you gave to me, she's the sinner, not me. So it's all her fault, not mine. The point is getting people to see their sins is sometimes very difficult. Often people see the sins of others, but not their own. This fact means that we need to be very objective in examining ourselves. I mean, the fact is, all of us sin. Every one of us. Everybody looking at me, you're a sinner. I'm looking at you, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And we should never be so bold and proud to think that we do not somehow, some way, or live above a life that can involve sin. John mentioned in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Two verses later, verse 10, chapter 1, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Every one of us is a sinner, and we all do something that we've done to sin. Paul's right. In Romans chapter 3, he writes, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. In verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then finally, in Romans 3.23, he says, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice as you write those down or look behind me in Romans chapter 3, Paul says it's everyone, everyone, every man, every woman, every child, all of mankind. We sin. Adam, on his own, ate from the tree. Eve may hand it to him. He did it. He took the bite. Adam had to sin. But Adam is the very thing that we all tend to do. Adam tried to blame his sin on Eve. And then Eve, when she's confronted, did the same thing on Satan. It's our human nature. We do not like to admit that we're guilty of sin. And if we do something wrong, we seem to be really quick to suggest it's based upon someone else and their actions not ours. We find others sin more quickly than we do our own and blame and shift and rationalize our actions and blame it on somebody else. It's just not my fault. At school, I work with a group of women. All right? Yeah, I drive the bus. Every morning, I get on the bus. I drive the students to school. Every afternoon, I get back on the bus where they get done from school, and I drive them home. But in that time between the morning route and the afternoon route, I'm in the kitchen working with women. Now, I don't work in the kitchen making food, no. But I take the liberty to 
restocked the storeroom, and I didn't put the food in containers into um, warm units, and I take them down the hallway or take them to the appropriate school. So in the kitchen I'm working in or at, the women are working together, getting prepared over 900 meals they got to send throughout all the school system in North Gibson. Now, overall, when you're making 900 meals, you would expect a few things to go wrong, and sometimes they do. But overall, that kitchen is highly effective. Rarely do problems occur. But when they do occur, and I'm around, I'm the only guy working with all these women. So when that happens, what do I do? I very quickly tell them, it's not my fault. I'm a guy. And I shift that blame really quickly back to them. Of course, it's their fault anyway. Because we tried to shift the blame. But I tell them, it's not my fault. I'm a guy. But I got one better example for you. This happened yesterday. This is fresh. Yesterday afternoon, Sheila and I are at my mom's house working on her redoing her bathroom. We have some baseboard that we decided to remove from the wall. We're going to refurbish it. We're going to reuse it. So we're getting ready to paint it. We took it off last weekend. So yesterday, we're there. We placed it in her shed, and we can't find it. we got to find the baseboard to begin to repaint it to use it. So we're both in the shed, and we're looking around, and all of a sudden, we both actually move the same direction at the same time, and we bump heads. Our heads just bump each other. And we're both going like this then when we bump our heads. But I guess I must have gave a look. Yeah, Sheila's not in here right now. But I guess I must have gave a look that, like, I didn't say this because I knew better than to say it. But in my mind, I was certainly thinking, and she's been knowing me long enough where I think she knew, I'm thinking when we bump heads, what is your head doing in my way? So she looks at me, and she kind of gave me some remarks after that. But <laughs> I'm thinking, first of all, it's not my fault our heads bumped each other. I'm trying to find the baseboards. You're in my way. That's what I'm thinking. I knew better to say it, but she knew exactly what I was thinking. But the whole point was, I was saying to myself, without maybe saying the words, it's not my fault we bumped heads. I shift the blame pretty quick. Don't tell her, Pearl, where are you going? Interesting, Perla walked out the minute I said that. Going to go find Sheila. But we're quick to shift blame. I mean, it happens to us in a moment without even realizing it. Nothing is ever our fault. We don't recognize our own sin, but we can easily see the sins of others. It happens to us. It's our human nature. But here's the thing. We need to take responsibility. We need to admit that we're sinner and confess. True godly sorrow is necessary. Otherwise, we will never be forgiven. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, here's the thing we should think about. That there'll be many people in judgment. Sheila mentioned we're all going to have a judgment day with the children. We're all going to have a day. There'll be many people in judgment, though, who will be lost because they committed sins of which they'd never repented. 
don't let that be us. Admit that you're a sinner and confess. God's third question he asks is, have you? He already knows the answer. He's waiting for his confession. Take responsibility and confess for the actions that we do, that we know is wrong. And then finally, there's the fourth question. Down in verse 13. All has happened. In verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The fourth question that God will ask us, What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? The fourth and final question is, of course, addressed to Eve. I mean, it clearly tells us that in verse 13. Guys, he's had a situation with Adam. Now he's looking over Eve. Yeah, Adam tried to shift the blame. But now he's looking over Eve, and he says, what is this that you have done? But the point is, while it's addressed to Eve in verse 13, it applies to every one of us in our lives. Why would God ask, what is it you've done? Why would it apply to all of us? Because God is trying to get Adam or Eve, and for all of us then, to consider the seriousness of her sin or of our sin. He's wanting us to know what we've done and the seriousness of the offense we had against him. And every sin is towards God. And he's wanting us to know the seriousness of that particular offense. Now, no doubt as, I'm not trying to put words in Eve's mouth, but no doubt as she's processing the question God asked her, what is this you've done? She could easily say, God, it's just a small piece of fruit. Get a grip. It's just fruit. I mean, it's not like I had a major offense. I mean, it's not like anything I've really done wrong. What's wrong with eating fruit? You know, it's interesting that that could be the response. We talked about how others see sin, we see other sin easier than our own, but it also then we need to recognize that we often, as we have our sin, and we may recognize it, we're quickly going to say, oh, it's not all that bad. It's not all that bad that that's what I did. But in fact, it is that bad. Because to God, sin is sin. No matter if it's lying, cheating on your taxes, buying one buffet but eating for two, or murder. I mean, it's all the same to God. When it comes to sin, we place it on a scale. I mean, to God, it's all sin, and it directly offends him. So as we tend to justify or rationalize a sin, Imagine God speaking directly to you then as he is with Eve and saying, what is this that you have done? What is this that you've done, Bob? What is this that you've done, Nick? What is this you've done, Eki? What is this you've done, Tom? He's speaking directly to all of us like he did the first question, already knowing the answer. What is this you've done? Remember, we know precisely what we should be doing. And we mess up, we just need to own up to it. Here in the text, as we find in Genesis chapter 3, it's called the fall. 
is when sin entered the world, the perfect place, the garden, this paradise. So God then, in that setting, in that moment, in the beginning, as that occurs, finally asks the question, what is this that you've done? And the quick and easy answer is what you've done is you've done exactly what God told you not to. So Adam and Eve are both directly responsible. So when God asked the question to Eve, but really to Adam as well, what is this you've done? Here's the answer that they've done. Here's what they have done. They brought sin into the world and all the consequences that come later. That happened on that moment in that garden at that time. It was the first sin and all the consequences followed after that. But the same thing applies to all of us. We have consequences from every bit of our sin as well. All sin has consequences. No, we didn't bring into the world Adam and Eve responsible for that. But every sin has consequences. And unfortunately, sin can even have consequences on those who are among the innocent. A drunk driver, after having a wreck, killed several people, will often say, what have I done? It's his actions against the innocent. What have I done? Indeed, what has he done? A married person, through unfaithfulness to the companion, seeing the companion walk out of their lives, utterly ruining the lives of themselves and the children, will end up crying in tears, what have I done? Indeed, what have they done? Their actions had consequences on someone else among the innocent. All sin has the consequence. There's numerous scenarios we could find where our sin perhaps affected somebody or how we were affected from someone else's sin. So what does that mean? It means this. All of us have sin. What all of us have done in our life has been wrong at some point. We've had some action and it resulted in disobedience and sin. So it means maybe we need to consider the seriousness of our sin. It's our sin. Own up to it. Admit it and confess it. Adam may have been the first, but he was certainly not the last. So what we have in our life that we learn from this text, that we already know, is that we have sin. That sin creates distance from us and God. So then God asks the question, where are you? Or have you done this? Or what is this you have done? And we feel guilty about it. Also, the enemy says, who told you that? You're worthless. These questions we find in the text, we also apply to our lives today. But the good news from all this is, leaving on a positive note, is that we recognize we are sinners, we have sinned, and God will forgive us of our sin right now today. He will forgive us. Jesus took the penalty and the price for all of our sin. God will forgive us for our sin. Lord Jesus. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today. We thank you for the truth that we find. We thank you for the questions. We find in the text that we can apply to our lives today.
Yes, Lord, we are sinners. Yes, we do things wrong that offend you. Which, as we do things wrong, can create that distance. Without confession, Lord, we become a missing person. We thank you for how the text reveals that to us today. Lord, today we want to come back. We don't come back to you, Lord. I pray for all of us here today that we don't want to be distant. We need to close that gap today by confessing our sin. Let's repent here this morning, Lord. I pray for all of us to have that desire to confess and to repent. So thank you, Lord, for how the message can give us Bible facts and tell us ultimately what we need to know about how we can receive forgiveness through your son, Jesus. We're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for your son. Very thankful that he took that abuse for us. He went up on a cross, Lord, for every one of us, and we're eternally grateful. So let us reconcile ourselves to you today. Let's draw close to you now upon this moment this time, this hour, this day. We draw close to you now, Lord, and confess our sin. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who took our sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen.